All right, the breaking news. Uh, former movie mogul Harvey Weinstein has been sentenced to 23 years in prison. Let's bring in Ricky. On March 11th, 2020, Harvey Weinstein was sentenced to 23 years in prison. 23 years in prison. That is the sentence that has been handed down for Harvey Weinstein. The moment was almost overlooked because everyone was paying attention to the news about the global pandemic that day. But it shouldn't be. For so many people, Weinstein's sentence was this rare moment of hope. Seeing a predator held accountable and sentenced to that many years in prison. And as Gloria Allred, who represented some of Weinstein's accusers, said, it sent a message. For all those who are still preying on women, who want to engage in the high risk taking of harming women and thinking you'll get away with it, that gamble is likely not to pay off for you anymore. For the public, a sentencing like this seems like the end of the story. But for victims, that's not the case. As one of Weinstein's victims said in court, quote, I am forced to carry that experience until I die. Rape is not just one moment of penetration. It is forever. Over the last year, 26 women decided to speak with us for our investigation about their Spanish tour guide, Manuel Blanco Vela. Some said he had asked inappropriate questions or made sexual comments. Some said they were drugged by him. Some said he sexually harassed them. And some said they were raped. You've listened to their stories. You've heard why they stayed silent and what happened when a few tried to speak up. We've told you about the criminal investigation in Spain and the complications of it all happening in a foreign country. But there's one piece we haven't yet talked about. It's what one woman calls the after. All of the time after you're sexually assaulted. The remembering it for the rest of your life part of the story. Is there ever going to be any resolve to this case? The emotional aftermath, the impact on your family, the wanting justice, and the decision whether or not to actually pursue it. I know that I'll sleep better at night knowing that he is held accountable for his actions. And the wanting it to just end. I want to be able to move on with my life and have a family one day and not have to think about this. I want to never have to talk about this again. I want it to be done. I just want it to be done. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Candace Mattel Khan. This is Motive. Episode 8 The After. Working on this story, I thought a lot about my own experience as a young woman studying abroad, how it, in many ways, defined my young adulthood. Living abroad, I gained a sense of confidence, freedom, and independence that significantly shaped who I became as a young woman. My editor, Alexandra Solomon, and I talked about this a lot over the last year. She, too, had a similar experience— 
Living abroad affected just about everything for her, from her career to her family. She met her husband there. One of the women, Erin, who asked us not to use her last name, thought about this too. I think there's something there in the fact that he chose to go after young women who were outside of their country and outside of their comfort zone and maybe were looking at an experience that was supposed to be this adventure, was supposed to be exciting. Alexandra and I found ourselves often talking about this. You know, the thrill of going abroad as a young person, learning about another culture, and all the potential that adventure holds, versus what ended up happening to the women we spoke with, and what was taken away from them. There's a part of that that makes me angry, that there's these young women going and studying abroad for the first time, and it's supposed to be a coming-of-age experience or this once-in-a-lifetime experience, and instead they're being preyed upon by this person who's taking advantage of that, and it, And it makes me angry. One woman who didn't want to tape an interview or have her name used told us that when she talks about what happened to her, everyone always asks her about the rape itself. But they don't ask, how are you now? Or what's it like a year later? Nobody talks about the after, she said. The during is terrible, but it's the after. That's the hard part. The way I viewed myself after, she said, I was worthless. I was an object. She says in the months after she says she was raped by Manuel, she was close to taking her own life. The biggest struggle, she says, has been trying to find value in herself again. So many of the women described similar struggles. And while not everyone had PTSD or suicidal thoughts, many struggled with basic day-to-day things like friendships or schoolwork. One woman, Tori Zile, described it this way. My head felt fuzzy all the time. Like, I would go, like, in and out of consciousness. There are papers I wrote in school, my final semester of college, that, like, I don't remember writing. I look back at them and I'm like, what the heck? Like, this isn't even how I write. This isn't even how I think. For many, like Erin, learning to cope with these daily struggles is still very much in process. I don't think I've come fully through my processing enough to be distant enough from it. I'm still working through my own feelings about it, and I'm still focusing on my own reactions to it, and it's so... I'm doing the work now that I probably should have done many years ago. Like Erin, another woman, Catherine, says for so long, she just tried to push it away when it would replay in her mind. I definitely went through a couple years of just kind of putting it in the back of my head. I didn't want to, like, acknowledge what had happened almost. I think I just kind of put it as far into the back of my brain as I could. And then when things would come up about being drugged and whatnot, then I would I would get really upset. I remember having a couple emotional breakdowns. And it's definitely been a, a long road of different emotions. And then there's Gabrielle Vega. 
it's not something that's ever going to go away. It's like kind of embedded in my DNA at this point. It's, you know, that kind of trauma just doesn't dissipate. But I really think, like, mentally I'm pretty tough. It's been enough time where I have those tools, but physically I suffer a lot of, like, anxiety or, or something. Like, it's, I feel sick a lot whenever I think about it. I have that same feeling still, but I don't really know how to get rid of that. I don't know how to help that. Gabrielle says she's had to deal not only with the aftermath of her own experience, but in a lot of ways, took on everyone else's, as all of these women confided in her about their own stories. And they're looking to her for guidance. In Gabrielle's after, so much of her day, every day, is spent thinking about this. I, like, try to, like, be 25 and, like, pay my rent on time and go to work make friends in this new city. Normal 25-year-old things. Yeah, like, yeah, like buying groceries and just being 25, yeah. It's a weird age, and doing this on top of it is, like, makes me feel like an alien. In your in your group of friends, like, in your social circle? Like, my whole life, it affects, like, everything. I, like, can't talk to men. I can't, like, I feel it's just always in the on the tip of my tongue like this whole case it's everywhere it's like a shadow so it's hard for me to kind of like separate myself like my life and who I am as a person and what I like to do when I have this whole thing looming behind me it's something I really struggle with being like normal Gabrielle says this hasn't just affected her the after affects families How do they process what happened to their daughter? Gabrielle told us that her dad couldn't listen to the second episode of this series, the one where we tell the story of her rape, because it was just too hard for him to hear. And that's actually something that she and many of the other women were worried about at the beginning. I mean, one of the main reasons I didn't tell my family was because I didn't want them to, like, blame themselves, and I didn't want them to feel like they failed as parents, but I also didn't want them to, like, see me for what I was in that state, which was, like, broken and just self-destructive and miserable. Catherine's mother says that she couldn't even bring herself to ask her daughter questions about what happened. It's too painful. She even had to reach out to a therapist herself. Am I the only mother who doesn't know the details about what happened? She wonders. I'm worried. I'm not giving my daughter what she needs. For some of the parents, the only way they knew how to cope in this after was to try and do something about it. For them, that meant going after the guy. Up next how the women we've spoken with have thought about pursuing legal charges and the ones who've decided not to. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so... No one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based. 
so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Over 80 women came forward in the media accusing Harvey Weinstein of sexual misconduct. But just two ended up being part of the criminal case in New York. Part of that has to do with the legal system. But the other part has to do with the gut-wrenching decision that victims of sexual assault say they have to make about whether or not to go to court. The narratives I heard the most often were, it's going to be a long, drawn-out, painful process. One woman who accused Weinstein of sexual assault, Lucia Evans, explained the decision she had to make in an interview with the New York Times. They're going to, you know, tear apart your background, your life. They're going to talk to everyone you've ever worked with, everyone you've ever been in a relationship with, find anything they can to discredit you and shame you and just, you know, ruin your life. So many of the women we spoke with had similar fears. Even though they know others are coming forward now and that there's a criminal investigation open in Spain, they don't want to testify or go before a judge for the same exact reasons we talked about earlier in the series about why women don't report sexual assault in the first place. The fear of not being believed. The fear of their credibility being challenged. One woman, who didn't want her name to be used, says Manuel had sex with her without her consent. But she isn't going to give a statement to the prosecutor. So many people blame women for when bad things happen to them. They say, you know, oh, you were wearing that. What did you expect? Or you were taking tons of tequila shot. Like, what did you think was going to happen to you? So I just feel like a lot of people put the blame on both parties when there is alcohol and drugs and sexual assault. Is your main worry around the public perception? Should your name or story get out? Or is it in the maybe inability of the legal system to understand what you believe happened to you that night? I feel like it might be both. I I know a girl who was raped in Spain, like completely different case, not related to Manuel. And when she went to the police, they were like, well, what were you wearing? Like you hear that so many times from both the legal system and just like society in general. So I just don't have a lot of faith in both. So it's fair to say you just have distrust of the process Yeah. But she's not just worried about what a judge or a prosecutor would ask. She's worried about what her own family would think if she were to pursue a legal case. I know my parents, they will say, it's your fault because you were drinking. Why did you go out? And that will just like make me feel worse and make it more traumatic than I think it already is for me. Out of the 26 women we spoke with, less than half are participating in the criminal investigation. For the ones that are, they say, despite the fear of what could happen in court, when you're sexually assaulted, A lot of this after is feeling like you've lost control and the prospect of even maybe being able to get that control back is one of the things that keeps them going. 
Justice to me would be a hearing where people can find out every little thing he's done for how long he's done it. I want him to have to answer to every single accusation. I want him to be sentenced. I want him to go to prison. I want him to be off the streets. He's a dangerous person, and it just needs to stop. So many of the women, like Gabrielle, have decided to participate in the investigation because they want justice for what's happened to them. I know that I'll sleep better at night knowing that he is held accountable for his actions. One woman, Jordan Chomer, says that she wants it even more now. I still have some guilt about it, about not being, like, wise enough to understand that that's something that I could, like, speak up and do something about. And if I can do it now, 10 years later, like, I want to. Haley McAleese says she wants to be able to face Manuel in court and tell him what he's done to her. All the women he's hurt, he probably didn't even know their name when he hurt them, which is terrible because that's a name that I'll always remember. And I think one of my biggest motivations in being part of this and like one of the starting women that came out against him was that I want him to know my name. The obvious question here is, will these women get the justice they're seeking? We just don't know. Not much has changed in the investigation since we updated you last, when Alexandra went to Spain and tried to find out what was happening. Manuel still hasn't been charged. He still hasn't been arrested. And what's happening at this very moment in the courts is a bit unclear, as the global pandemic has temporarily affected the functioning of the courts in Spain. But no matter what happens with this specific case, the women have all made it clear that this isn't just about their own personal pursuit of justice. I think justice would be the ability for future women, future students to be able to travel and to have the time of their life abroad and to not have to worry that oh, they're picking up a drink from a bar and they might not remember the next two days. I think that justice is freedom and I think that we need to have the freedom to not be afraid of someone taking control of our body. I hope that there are are safer measures taken for study abroad programs. There has to be a better system than like telling girls like, okay, like you have to stay sober so that you can avoid, like, some man's predatory behavior. Like, there just needs to be, like, a better system instituted that protects women instead of, like, blaming them for not taking every safety precaution possible. Any voice, no matter how small, can make a change and really protect people. Because as much as this is, you know, getting justice for me and the other women that have been part of it, I think it's a way to protect other women, too. And the small little voice that I have can, you know, shout loudly and change things. What these women want sounds like reasonable change. So what's preventing it from happening? Well, that's a really big question. Why is it that men are able to get away with rape with such impunity? Well, there are. So many reasons for that. 
Katha Hoffer has been working with survivors of sexual assault for more than 30 years. She runs the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. She says there are so many factors that go into answering that question, from cultural perceptions of women to the misconception many people have about what rape actually is. And, she says, our culture has a real problem with not taking a single victim seriously. You know, at this point, it's we're not just waiting for the second woman or the third woman. Often our culture is waiting for the 30th woman or the 35th woman before the first woman is recognized as having any credibility. And yet, despite having worked on hundreds of sexual assault cases, surprisingly, Hoffer's hopeful about the future. Well, I'm profoundly excited and optimistic about the capacities of effective prevention to drive down rates of sexual violence. I think that we are just in the beginning stages as a culture of figuring out how to do prevention intelligently, right? Historically, prevention efforts have largely been focused on victims. You know, have a whistle, hear all the things you can do to be in situations where so that you don't get raped, right? That's a crazy way to engage in prevention. A better way to approach prevention, Hoffer says, is to look at the research, which suggests that more men commit sexual assault when they believe they can get away with it. So she says we need to do a better job as a society at making it clear that there are consequences to these kinds of crimes and behaviors. Sometimes that can be conveyed by a perpetrator being expelled from a campus community. Sometimes it looks like an effort by police or prosecutors to actually bring a prosecution against a person. Sometimes it looks like a social circle believing a victim and expressing compassion for them and also having really smart engagement with both men and women, including when they're boys and girls, about sexual violation would be profoundly helpful. There are so many things that we could be doing that haven't been tried enough. We're not fighting some biological imperative um, and we can make a difference. This idea of prevention is so often neglected in the media, but it's vital to this conversation. Because if we get prevention right, there would be no after for these women. For any women. For anyone. Some of the women say they've tried to use what happened to them as a positive force in their lives, something that can fuel their futures. My school is offering an elective on training to become an advocate for women who have experienced sexual assault and domestic violence. Tori Zile, for example, who is currently in medical school and hoping to specialize in surgery, says she's now interested in treating victims of sexual assault. I took the training. I learned how to support women and be an advocate for women who have experienced domestic violence or sexual assault. And like what I would really ultimately love to do, like pie in the sky dreams, is help restore women's bodies after they've experienced sexual assault or domestic violence. So 
reconstruct anything that's been damaged as a result of violence, like, is I think like what I would really like to do career-wise. Gabrielle says she's thinking of going to law school to work on international sexual assault cases. And she just applied for a job at the UN to work on global campaigns against sexual violence. She's seen firsthand the complications and problems in the system. And she believes there aren't enough people doing this work. And she's also seen how victims being supported can make such a difference. We can't end this story without acknowledging that there's one woman who doesn't get to decide her future. And that's the woman we started this whole series with, Lauren Bajorek, the college student who died when she fell off of Manuel's apartment balcony in Seville on her 21st birthday. Lauren's criminal case hasn't been reopened. But there is one more thing we know about that story. Lauren's family sued Manuel Blanco Vela in Spanish civil court. And on February 13th, 2019, the judge found Manuel liable for negligence. The judge ordered Manuel to pay over 73,000 euros, about $80,000 in damages. But the family hasn't been paid that money yet because Manuel appealed. And that appeal is still pending. I want to thank all of the women who have spoken to us for this story, for being vulnerable and courageous, even when it was painful and difficult. And while we don't know how this story is going to end, Gabrielle says one thing's for sure. I would love to have the luxury of like not having to talk about this. And I mean, I do have that option. I could throw in the towel and never speak of it again, but I would not be able to like live with myself. It's just not me. I have to follow this through or else I don't see how I could go through the rest of my life. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. The show is produced by me, Candace Mattel-Khan. The editor is Alexandra Solomon, who was more than just an editor on this project. She reported, translated, went to Spain, and did a million late nights and weekends with me as we tried to untangle this story over the last year. This investigation truly would not have been possible without her. Additional reporting in Spain from Carmen Ibanez-Espinoza. The executive producer is Kevin Dawson. The intern is Isabel Carter. This episode was mixed by myself and Joe Dassault. I also want to take a moment to thank all of my colleagues who contributed to edits, including Rob Wildeboer, Kate McGee, Jessica Popovac, Kate Cahan, Jesse Dukes, Linnea Dominic, Sarah Balama, Kim Samario, Mackenzie Crossan, Becky Vivi, Carrie Shepard, And a very special thanks to WBEZ interim CEO Steve Edwards for his editorial guidance and support. I also want to thank Manuel Martinez, Sylvie Graubard, Al Keefe, and Michael Nathan for voiceovers. And to Linda Lutton, Yoli Maldonado, Adriana Cardona-Magigad, 
Michael Puente, Ashley Rodriguez, and Sylvia Rivera for help with translations, as well as OVP Management Consulting Group. Thanks to Justin Bull and Brendan Banizak for digital support, and Colin McNulty and Shelley Steffens for engineering and production support throughout this project. Last but not least, thanks to you, listeners. This podcast is made possible by the financial contributions of WBEZ listeners like you. If you have information about this story or any general thoughts or questions, you can always email us at motive at wbez.org. And for information and resources about sexual violence, go to www.rainn.org.